Well, it is good to come together and end the day in worship together. It's been my pleasure to be with all of you here uh, these last days as I was with colleagues uh, in the conference on Friday and Saturday and now on this, the Lord's Day. It's been my true joy to get to know some of you a bit and to bring to you God's Word. And tonight I'd like us to look in the Old Testament. This morning we were in Hebrews. I'd like us to look tonight at 2 Chronicles 26. We're going to read the whole chapter, 2 Chronicles 26. That is page 478 in your pew Bible. This is God's holy word. And all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king instead of his father Amaziah. He built Eloth and restored it to Judah after the king slept with his fathers. Uzziah was 16 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done. He set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. He went out and made war against the Philistines and broke through the wall of Gath, and the wall of Jebna, and the wall of Ashdod. And he built cities in the territory of Ashdod and elsewhere among the Philistines. God helped him against the Philistines and against the Arabians who lived in Gerbaal and against the Manites. The Ammonites paid tribute to Uzziah, and his fame spread even to the border of Egypt, for he became very strong. Moreover, Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate and at the valley gate and at the angle and fortified them. And he built towers in the wilderness and cut out many cisterns, for he had large herds both in the Shephelah and in the plain. And he had farmers and vine dressers in the hills and in the fertile lands, for he loved the soil." Moreover, Uzziah had an army of soldiers fit for war in divisions, according to the number in the muster made by Jael, the secretary, and Maasa, the officer, under the direction of Hananiah, one of the king's commanders. The whole number of the heads of fathers' houses of mighty men of valor was 2,600. Under their command was an army of 307,500 who could make war with mighty power to help the king against the enemy. And Uzziah prepared for all the army shields, spears, helmets, coats of mail, bows, and stones for slinging. In Jerusalem he made machines invented by skillful men to be on the towers and the corners to shoot arrows and great stones. And his fame spread far, for he was marvelously helped till he was strong. But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction, for he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. But Azariah the priest went in after him with eighty priests of the Lord who were men of valor, and they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for you've done wrong, and it will bring you no honor from the Lord God. Then Uzziah was angry. Now he had a censer in his hand to burn incense, and when he became angry with the priest, leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priests in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. And Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him, and behold... 
he was leprous in his forehead. And they rushed him out quickly and he himself hurried to go out because the Lord had struck him. And King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death. And being a leper, lived in a separate house, for he was excluded from the house of the Lord. And Jotham his son was over the king's household, governing the people of the land. Now the rest of the acts of Uzziah, from first to last, Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, wrote. And Uzziah slept with his fathers, and they buried him with his fathers in the burial field that belonged to the kings, for they said he is a leper. And Jotham his son reigned in his place. God's holy word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you. We thank you beyond any words to express that you have revealed yourself to us, not only in nature, but especially in Scripture. And here we see, here we see what you would have us to know. Let us not seek to know that which doesn't pertain to us as we thought with regard to the psalm we heard and sung earlier, but rather let us seek to know what you have shown us in your word and to be in our place and to delight in you. We pray these things in our Savior's name. Amen. Dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, you've likely heard, maybe applied to you when younger, young man, or young woman, you need to know your place. Now I would like to tell you I never heard anybody say anything like that to me, but I did. More than once. Maybe it was said by a parent or, or teacher um, that you were, as also it was said in my day, too big for your britches. Not being properly respectful or submissive, but proud and rebellious. Well, we definitely don't. We need to know our place before God. Something that men and women have had a problem with since disobeying God in the Garden of Eden. And back of that stands Satan's pride and revolt against God into which he invited our first parents in Eden. We now come before God not only as creatures, which should mean humility on our part, knowing our place, but as sinful creatures. We're to come before God as, indeed, someone made in His image, but humbly. Not those who can make demands, but as poor, needy sinners, supplicants of His grace. We must, in other words, know our place. Uzziah had a problem here with knowing his place. A, a remarkable statement for one who is a king. But in Israel, even the king is not also a priest. Uzziah as king acted here like he was a priest. There's only one king who was also a priest truly. Our king and great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. He knew his place wonderfully and gloriously. So tonight we look at the sad fact that Uzziah forgot his place. And we see, first of all, that he knew it earlier, but secondly, he forgot it in pride. And thirdly, we rejoice to see that his descendant Christ knew his. Well, we begin by saying then that Uzziah 
earlier knew his place. This is very clear from our text. Look at verse 4. He made this clear by doing what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Remarkably, verse 4 says that he did what was right according to all that his father Amaziah had done. Now if you look back a chapter in 25, you'll see that Amaziah had engaged in idolatry and he suffered defeat, even going back further as his father Joash forsook the Lord after the death of his faithful counselor and priest Jehoiada. But earlier in both of their reigns, they were faithful. His grandfather Uzziah's grandfather Joash engaging in significant temple repair and his father Amaziah enjoying significant battle victories. Thus this text that tells us that Amaziah did what was right is telling us about the good part and that which is worthy of imitation in Uzziah's father. By the way, just as a historical note, Uzziah, also called Azariah in the Kings, was co-regent with his father Amaziah from 796 to 767 BC. They were co-rulers. And with his son Jotham, after being struck with leprosy from 750 to 733, meaning that Uzziah had less than 20 years of sole rule. This co-regent kind of situation was not unusual at this time in Judah. Uzziah's doing what was right meant, as verse 5 tells us, that he sought the Lord. He sought the Lord. And how did he do that? By placing himself under faithful Zechariah. Now we don't know who this is. This isn't Zechariah the prophet after whom a book is named. That's just the man's name. We don't know more about him than that. But he received instruction from this Zechariah. You should note that this is the way of safety, to be under the faithful ministry of the Word. Do you seek the Lord? Maybe a neighbor says, well, I'm seeking the truth. I'm seeking the Lord. You need to thus place yourself under faithful preaching. That's how you find the Lord. Zechariah faithfully instructed Uzziah. And this instruction was in the fear of the Lord, that is, in the commandments of God, right? The commandments of God speak of this, especially one would think applying that fear to what he should do as pertains to the office of a king. We're never so pleasing to the Lord when we're in our proper place carrying out our duties under the Word, doing our duties, and the Lord made him prosper, verse 5. Now here's a part of assurance. We've been talking about assurance for the last few days. And here you have someone who is seeking the Lord, who is being instructed in the fear of the Lord, who is taking that instruction, and God is blessing him. And certainly he knows and has a solid place to stand. As verse 5 again says, the Lord made him prosper. As long as Uzziah sought him, listening to sound instruction. And the Lord's blessing is made evident in the verses that follow. Verses 6 to 8 speak about particularly Uzziah recovering territory lost after Solomon's time. You recall 
that King Solomon, David and Solomon were sort of the high watermark of Israel. And every man dwelt under his own vine and fig tree. It was a time of great blessing. And then after Solomon, his son Rehoboam lost the ten tribes. The kingdom was split. And so you had Jeroboam taking the northern part of Israel and Rehoboam there in the south in Judah. And some other lands were lost to the south. And what we see here is Uzziah recovering them. That's what's described here. Elath on the Red Sea, particular Philistine towns, fighting against the Arabians at Gerbaal and against the Maonites and receiving tribute from the Ammonites. So he's rebuilding the kingdom in a measure we might say. He particularly is carrying out his duties as king and being blessed by it. He's building, verse 9, he's shepherding and farming, verse 10. Royal building projects are seen in the book of Chronicles, especially as marking a time of flourishing, times of obedience and blessing. This, in the animal husbandry and farming, all points to diligence, duty, and the attendant shalom. Peace, of course, Solomon, that's his name, right? Shalom, the prince of peace, not the ultimate one, but he's the one who follows David. We look for that ultimate prince of peace. But here you have someone who leads them in shalom, which is well-being, the full meaning of that word. It's a beautiful word. Not just absence of war, but, but flourishing. And so what you have here is, is a bit of, of a return to, you could call it, the Pax Hebraica. You all remember from your historical studies, the Pax Romana, the peace of the Romans, that part when the Roman Empire was flourishing a couple of hundred years after and in the time of Augustus. And here you have a kind of Pax Hebraica uh, like you had in the time of Solomon in which uh, men and women prospered. Well. He was a good ruler, that's the point here. Doing well with what pertained to his kingly duty, especially his military duty. Note that. Its consequence, its conquests and successes rather fascinatingly described for us in verses 11 to 15, including unusually, there's some interesting details here. Of course, the detail just a moment ago about him loving the soil. That gives you some, some feel for the man. And now we're told that he supplied his army. And we're, we're given the details about that. And you probably think, big deal. No, it is quite a big deal because armies were customarily required to supply themselves. The king didn't supply them. You supplied yourself. He even gave them stones. That's rather remarkable. This is, I mean, he is supplying them. He is giving them more than any Democrat in the debate promises to give to everybody. He is, they are receiving it. They are really receiving it. The land is flourishing. And you see here that uh, his fame spreads abroad because of his ingenuity. He, he doesn't just have military success, he exhibits military genius. Look at verse 15. He made machines invented by skillful men on the towers, the corners, to shoot arrows, great stones. He has new ways to deliver. Uh, he's working with the defense contractors and they're just going great guns here. 
Well, do you know and perform your duties so well? Do you know your place as a husband, as a wife, as a son, as a daughter, as a teacher, as a student, as a minister, as an elder, as a deacon, as an employer, an employee? And do you endeavor to serve as best you can in these? Not seeking to be out of your place, the employee displacing the employer, the son or the daughter, the mother or the father. And, and it's important to say here, when we think about this, and you need to recognize that gifts aren't determinative here. Let me back up. Sometimes you may be working for someone and you say, I know more than that guy does. I should be running the business. But you're not. Now, first of all, you need to recognize that's your opinion of yourself. Let's be real here, right? Maybe you do, maybe you don't, because I venture to say if you really do, the cream does tend to rise to the top. I, that's just the truth, okay? So you might become your own owner, you might become quite successful in that respect. But gifts aren't determinative. A student can't say, I know more than a teacher and doesn't have to listen. Of course students know more than teachers. This is always an interesting thing as a teacher. because A teacher is a fool who teaches in a way of, I know more than all of you do. Well, there's a certain sense in which you do because you're more, but if you're talking about just native ability and intelligence, you're going to have students who are more intelligent than you are natively. They have higher IQs is what I mean by this. And you should rejoice in that. You should want to help them along. But you need to know your place. So when I say gifts aren't determinative, we all know how this plays out in the church. The women here we hear from many churches are better able than the men to lead and to preach. And you know what? They may be better preachers in terms of more able to speak. They may have gifts that make them very good speakers. But God hasn't ordained that women should be pastors, or elders. You see, gifts aren't determinative. Teddy Roosevelt at Harvard. Young man, one of his professors said in government, if you can teach this class you seem to think you can better than I, come up here and do it. And of course Roosevelt did. He went to the front. But you really shouldn't do that. It's sort of like Icarus who flew too close to the sun and the wings melted. You need to know your place. Develop gifts within your call. Advance if possible. But know your place like Uzziah and serve the Lord that, with all that is within you. Uzziah knew his place until he didn't. You've got to get though, first of all, he did know it. And then he didn't. He forgot his place in pride. And this is our second point. When he became strong, verse 16 says, he grew proud to his destruction. He was unfaithful and entered the temple to burn incense on the altar of incense. He forgot his place as king, as if that wasn't enough. And he sought that which didn't pertain to his duty as king. Specifically, it was not his place as king to offer sacrifice such absolutism surely must be tempting to a king, but 
Deuteronomy 17, 14 to 20 made it clear that in Israel the king is not absolute. The king is under law. The king is to know his place as king. Now we can see in modern context people that are absolute like Kim Jong-un. Not only does he intend to rule and desire to rule in North Korea, he wants to be everything and to be adored as if he were deity. Uzziah was unfaithful to the Lord in his unbiblical absolutism that prompted him to usurp the prerogatives of the priesthood. And the Lord punished him with leprosy after he refused to repent. Let's think a minute about it. Azariah, he goes into the temple, Uzziah goes into the temple, and he is withstood, he is met by Azariah and 80 priests. You might note there it says they're men of valor, which is often used to mean armed men. We're we're not certain about this. So do you see what could be going on here? Most likely Uzziah is not by himself. He's the king. He's going to have retinue with him. He's likely to have armed men with him. And he's met by the high priest and 80 men of valor, perhaps they're armed. I mean, there could be, well, if it were a musical, you could say a rumble coming up here. There could be a fight right in the temple. And of course he's given opportunity, you note that as well, don't you, to desist from such a course of wicked rebellion against God. The chief priest basically says, go out, turn around. He could have stopped and left and that would have been the end of it. You you understand that, don't you? But he doesn't. He's angry. And thankfully the Lord stops him right there in his anger. Who knows what he was about to do? In other words, he's confronted, he's told to stop, and he's angry, meaning he ain't stopping. And the Lord doesn't let it go any further than that. So there's not a fight, the place is, you know, like a bar room and everything getting broken, no. Leprosy breaks out on his forehead. This is interesting because normally you would think of maybe that in the extremities. I never heard of it breaking out on the forehead. You see, the priest would, of course, a king would wear a crown, but so would a priest, right? The great high priest wears a crown. The high priest wears a crown. Turban and a crown that says on his forehead, holiness to the Lord in Hebrew. So the true priest has holiness to the Lord on his forehead and this man has leprosy. And in the Old Testament, leprosy is always a kind of outward sign, an outward manifestation of our inward rottenness and corruption. God always uses that to show a kind of a symbol outwardly of what we're like on the inside. And so his rebellion, his sin, his his being too big for his britches here, just breaks out right there where the priest has holiness to the Lord. And of course he now is going to be in solitude. Think of it this way. Uzziah sought to bring together that which was to be separate, the offices of king and priest, so his punishment is isolation in life and death. He seeks to bring together what shouldn't be brought together and he ends up as a leper in isolation. Nothing's being brought together there. It's just separated altogether. 
Many wrongly assume that the separation or distinction of the officers, those who are the officers in state and church, is a modern Western concept, having no place in Israel's theocracy. But listen, if you would, Israel was not a theocracy in the sense that many understand that word. Now, Josephus, the historian, the Jewish historian, was perhaps the first to call it a theocracy. And it was a theocracy. Israel was a theocracy in the sense that there was an identity between the nation and the church and all was under God's direct rule. It was not, however, a theocracy as were the surrounding cultures in its day in which the king was not only absolute but divine or semi-divine like Hammurabi or Pharaoh. Many of the kings in the surrounding cultures to Israel were regarded as divine or semi-divine. Obviously not the king of Israel, God alone is. And in many of these cultures the king could, act, could either act as a priest or there was no distinct priesthood from the kingship. Such an office separation then, we might say, of the religious and the civil leader does not obtain today in what we call and rightly regard as a theocracy. When we speak of, of present theocracies, we're speaking of something different than Israel had. I mentioned North Korea, but I'll mention two cases, Saudi Arabia and Iran. Now, they're very much a part of Islam. Well, in Islam, the imam or the mullah or the ayatollah is not only the religious leader, but the civil leader. They make no distinction. They're one and the same. God's word does not collapse those into one and the same. There's a distinction between the king, who's the religious leader, and the priest who serves in the temple. And so we could say this is a particular insight of Judaism and then Christianity. Obviously, Christianity is going to take this message that came to and through the Jews to all the world. And we can say this especially will characterize the Western church. And you might say, what, well, what are the Roman Catholic church? Well, the Roman Catholic Church's problem has never been that they fail to distinguish as an entity, as institutions, church and state. It's just that they think that the church is over the state. And then in the Reformation, some reversed that, what's called Erastianism. You had to deal with that a lot in the Netherlands. We had to deal with it in England, which say, no, no, the state is over the church. And you say, which is it? Neither. All the institutions are under God. Church and state and family, they're all under God and they have their proper officers and they have their proper ordinances. Well, just a little bit there on this scriptural insight bringing us to our last point as we thought about Uzziah knowing his place earlier and then in pride exalting himself, seeking to be that which he was not. Yes, he was king, but as we say in Israel, the king is under law. Everyone is under law. Uzziah's greatest descendant, Christ, knew his place. As the God-man, he possessed 
full messianic consciousness. Now, I, rem I mention that because that's a huge discussion in theological and biblical studies, liberals denying that Christ, as they might say, whoever He really was, had this consciousness. You'll often find this, that they deny that Jesus had any consciousness of being the anointed one of God. Now, our Lord Jesus Christ fully knew Himself as the God-man, though as one who voluntarily came down from His glory and who in His humanity developed. Here's the marvel. Uzziah sought what was not rightly his, right? He goes into the temple seeking what doesn't belong to him and Jesus freely gave up what was rightly his. The perpetual praises of heaven. He humbled himself. Uzziah exalted himself. Our Lord Jesus Christ humbled himself where Uzziah did the opposite as a true son of Adam as we are. Jesus, in fact, humbled Himself so much that He went to the cross before assuming the crown. And of course, one of the great temptations of the devil in the temptations of our Lord, you know this, right? Was to bypass the cross and to go for the crown. I'll give you the kingdoms if you fall down and worship Me. But all this is to be His but not without first going to the cross. We don't enter into exaltation without first humiliation. We saw that this morning. If Jesus had not come the first time in humiliation, He wouldn't have come as our Savior. He's coming a second time as judge because He's coming in exaltation. Now you say, well, wait a minute, He's our judge? No, if you trust in Him alone, He's your Savior. As Calvin says, God is no longer our judge but our Father. But He is coming in glory to judge the world. But He came that first time all because of love, to live and die for us, humbling Himself to obey the law for us and to pay for our disobedience. Particularly, Christ came to live and die for rebels. This is the truth. He came to live and die for rebels like you and me who don't know their place, for the likes of us who deserve condemnation, but because of Jesus, receive justification and adoption and sanctification and ultimately glorification. Jesus knew His place. And as our King, He also is properly our great high priest. Two points here. He humbled Himself where Uzziah exalted Himself, taking that which wasn't His to Himself. Jesus freely gave it up, up for us all but He actually is the King who is properly the priest. It's no usurpation for Him to act and to perform that priestly office. You see, Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. We've talked here and there about Hebrews over the last few days. And Hebrews makes this very clear. I mean, you go back to Psalm 110 and you can trace this through. Well, you go back to Genesis and then Psalm 110, trace it through. Jesus is a priest 
not of Levi's order, but of Melchizedek's order. Thus he is the true king of righteousness. That's what Melchizedek means, Melchizedek, king of righteousness, who is also king of peace, Melech Shalom, king of Salem. And as we say, he's the one in whom righteousness and peace embrace and kiss. Jesus is the priest who needed no offering for himself, but was himself also the offering, the perfect needed offering at that, whose sacrifice was once for all, ending all sacrifice, and who continues as our great high priest, as we saw this morning, ever living, now to make intercession for us. Christ is the true only and final priest king that we all need. Truth be told, all kings, priests, fathers, sons, mothers, daughters fail and need the blood and righteousness of one who never did, who has fulfilled all righteousness for us. You and I struggle, don't we? We struggle with what Uzziah did, knowing our place. Knowing our place before God above all. We're often like Job, to whom God said, after Job basically wanted to question God, explain this to me, God. Why am I thus suffering, not having sinned in the ways my friends have said? And God comes and says, You want to question me? Where were you when I made the world? You know what's going on better than I do? And again, we come back to Psalm 139. We need to not seek to know that which is too wonderful for us. We need to not seek to usurp God's place, but to know our own. And Job did. Didn't he? When God came and said, Where were you when I did all this? Job repented. He put his hand over his mouth. We need to as well. Maybe you question his providence in your life. Why do I struggle so? And sometimes we say, Why do I struggle so with this sin? I've had people say to me, If it were just some other sin, if it were something like I look at Bill and I look at Sally and they don't struggle in the same way I do. Do you think you know what other people struggle with? Seriously? I remember once in the ministry when I was full-time in the pastorate, in a week, three different people coming to my office and sort of, you know, quietly saying, Pastor, I am so struggling with this sin, and I I just, I I know nobody else here is, and can I even be a Christian if I'm struggling with this? And they were all speaking about the same thing. And they had no idea that anybody else was struggling with it. You don't know what goes on in other people's hearts. So stop looking at people from the outside and wishing you had their problems instead of your own. Maybe you lack money. You lack position at your job. Maybe you have lousy relationships with with others, with family, with friends. You suffer sickness and pain. You fear so many things. Don't look for greener pastures. Look no further than where He's put you. And seek to be faithful there 
you'll fail. You say, well, that's not good news. Well, yeah, it is. It's realistic. You'll fail, but take comfort that He has succeeded for you in every respect as your true priest king who humbled Himself so that in due time you might be exalted. You will be if your faith and trust is in Him. But as I said again this morning, wait on the Lord. And in due time, He'll exalt you. In the meantime, let's take our place before Him and there be lost in wonder, love, and praise. Amen. Father, we thank You for Jesus Christ, for that true son of Judah, who unlike Joash or Amaziah or Uzziah, continued faithful to the end, as we heard this morning, endured the cross. Help us to do so. Help us to not seek to, out of weariness or tiredness or whatever it is we imagine, seize something grab something that doesn't properly belong to us, but to be faithful in what you've called us to, to be joyful in that, to advance as we have occasion to, but to understand that's not the most important thing. Advancing isn't the most important thing. It certainly wasn't to Paul. Help us, Lord, to be faithful and to give you thanks for the fact that Jesus Christ was faithful for us. In whose name we pray, amen. We sing together as we come to close number four.